Hello, this is Bob Groves, and I welcome you all to a podcast series that we call Faculty and Research. And I'm delighted this week to welcome Lamanda Horton Stallings. She is a professor of African American studies in the college and actually the former chair of that department. She is a world-renowned scholar of African-American studies, African-American literature, feminism, and gender studies, and other cultural studies. She's a prolific scholar. She received her PhD in English from Michigan State University. She's the author of four books, the most recent of which is entitled The Afterlives of Kathleen Collins, A Black Woman Filmmaker's Search for New Life. And I can note further that her work has garnered several book awards from professional associations. And she's the author of many essays in a host of different outlets. So we are indeed honored to have her among the faculty at Georgetown. So thank you, Lamanda, for joining us today. And I can't wait to have our conversation. Maybe one way to start is uh, to tell us a little about your new book and why did you do it? What's the message you want us to absorb from that work? Yeah, so thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to kind of share more about my kind of journey and my work. And so what I'll just say is this recent project, The Afterlives of Kathleen Collins, A Black Woman Filmmaker's Search for New Life is actually a book I had been working on for 10 years. Um, And so sometimes we get projects that take longer (laughs) than we expected. And so I was able in 2010 to get access to a number of papers by this Black woman filmmaker who was making films in the 1980s, early 1980s, and who had been a film scholar, professor, and editor in the 1970s when there were very few women and very few women of color doing that kind of work. And so I think in 2010, when I had been doing work on a previous kind of book project on sexuality, uh, Kathleen Collins' work came up because of her kind of representation of religious ecstasy and eroticism in her Black films. Um, And so for me, I initially did an article on her that came out in a journal, but because I had been granted access to her papers from her daughter, Nina Collins, it took me on this path of basically doing a bunch of kind of research, um, both archival, but also updating myself on my film scholars training. I was trained at Michigan State as a literature scholar who was trained by African Africanist and African film scholar, Ken Harrell, a linguist, Geneva Smitherman, who do work on language, and then a Black studies scholar, Greg uh, Thomas, who did work on uh, Afro diasporics and genders and sexualities. And so this was a project that basically took advantage of all of my kind of interdisciplinary training in film, literature, and gender and sexuality studies. But it was also a project that took me back to my undergraduate days as an English major when a number of my courses as a as a minor were film and theater. And so just wondering what would have happened if I had had somebody like Kathleen Collins as a, a film professor. 
in the South at that time would have been a, a kind of amazing journey. But I do think that was my inclination to do work on this person is just seeing how much work writing, editing and filmmaking she had done and how little people knew about her. Of course, that's changed now. Nina Collins has done a wonderful job of making sure that the film uh, Losing Ground was re-released and has been um, basically adopted into the Library of Congress, Turner Classic Movies, a number of kind of accolades in the last five years, I think. And so I think a lot more people know about Kathleen Collins than when I first started doing research on her. And so the book is actually a kind of timely look at her work in terms of Afro and African diasporic legacies that I think she makes for U.S. film studies. And, and again, not somebody who was trained in the United States, but who had to go uh, to France to be trained as a film scholar. And so I think that says a lot about race in Hollywood in the United States in the 1960s when she was being trained. And that's the kind of work I, I like to do is to find these figures who have done some things that people said isn't supposed to exist or aren't supposed to be possible. And she's definitely somebody who conveys that representation. Do you remember when you first discovered her? It was through her work, I assume, through a film. It, it was through a film that I had at a previous job where the Black Film Center in Indiana was housed. And I had just been going through archives films there and they had a copy of her film as well as um, she had done a summer workshop there and I saw both the kind of uh, recording of the workshop she did at the university and the film around the same time and just was very kind of taken with what she represented. She has a DC connection. I think one of her first film talks was at Howard University as well in terms of talking about Black filmmaking in the early 1980s and so I think just coming across her work and identifying with what that film Losing Ground meant to me as a, as a professor. Uh, the film is about a philosophy professor, a Black woman philosophy professor. Some of the kind of ways that this person was thinking about her intellect and her body was very important to me as a professor having to deal with these kinds of issues in the classroom. And so it was a good film, but the kind of writing in terms of novels, short stories, plays that she had done made her more even bigger figure than just that one film. So, and Nina had been, you know, she's told this story a bunch of times. She had this trunk full of her mother's papers and I just reached out to her on a whim and she opened up her family and papers to me. And so it wasn't much of a detective work. I didn't have to seek out anything. The papers and films had been cared for over years by this family. And so I think it's really a kind of family story about sharing your family story with somebody else who thinks it's amazing and important. And so, yeah. And so I think she was a key figure in this. And I think that just her kind of openness and willingness to let me have access to those papers was very helpful. So one of the things you mentioned early on in, in this conversation was that this took a while. And I, I got the sense that you had to put it aside and do some other stuff. One of the things we've discovered among our colleagues is that some of us choose one thing to work on and just get rid of everything else. And they just blast away at that one piece of work. And others seem to have 
different approaches. They really need to work on multiple things at once to be productive on any one thing. What makes you happy, working on a lot of different things at once or working on one thing really deeply? So I'll say for me, it's working multiple things, but it's not by choice. And so I do think even when this Kathleen Collins work had started, I was actually finishing up another project, Front the Erotic. And that was at the tail end where I was able to produce the article, but couldn't dedicate the time to doing that. And so I think for me, all of my projects come out of each other. Then that means I may have to teach myself again. I may have to Think about how to, you know, spend time, years uh, rereading in a new field or something like that. And so I think that's part of it. And also, not for nothing, after I became tenured and got sucked into administrative kind of duties, it's a little hard to do multiple projects at once. And sometimes certain projects take the back burner. And I think with Kathleen Collins, especially, it was wanting to have the right perspective on her work and not be distracted by other things. But for me, I've basically always ended up getting ideas for new projects while I'm working on a project. And so I'll just consistently make through notes throughout the projects that I'm working on and whichever one seems clear to me, that's the direction I'll go in. And mm-hmm. so, and teaching generates that too, you know, cause your students are always keeping you honest and making sure, you know, you don't know as much as you think, you know, sometimes, and maybe if they ask you a question and you want to find out more, it just takes you in another direction. So I think some of this is also about what have I taught over the years? Where have I taught? Who have I taught? You know, when I was teaching grad students at my previous universities, just being engaged in all the different fields that were coming up from disability studies and sound studies, environmental studies, all of those things where you have your field of interest, but you also start to be fed by these other fields and you still have some of your same questions, but they're now different as a result of coming into contact with those other fields. Mm-hmm. And that's exciting for a researcher, for a teacher, and for a writer. So many of my academic colleagues say the same thing, that the general impression that teaching and research or scholarship are in conflict isn't right. They support one another in important ways. So how did you choose this field? Can you remember when you first made a decision? Yeah, this is for me. This is what I want to do. Tell us a bit about how you evolved intellectually. The majority of my work is on gender and sexuality. And so I think I'm informed by my kind of personal background. I'm the daughter of a teenage mother who was both a Sunday school teacher and a teacher's assistant in the public schools. And she was somebody who, you know, in terms of kind of being judged morally uh, around that. And so I wasn't even aware of how much that was informing what I was going to do. I knew I wanted to be a writer. I knew we were poor and I knew I wanted to figure out how to have those conversations. And so I think I was lucky along the way to find my way to this field. I didn't think I was going to be a teacher because teaching doesn't pay that much as I learned from my mother. But I do think going to undergraduate, I had a very good kind of mentor, Adrian Israel, who was like a student activist at Howard and and did all this kind of work around Black life and Black studies that encouraged me to go to grad school. And I really, even in uh, when I got my master's, didn't get to do any kind of work on Black literature and culture because 
in English departments at that time, everything was centered on uh, British and American literature with little focus on race. And so it wasn't until I got to Michigan State to receive my PhD that I got to focus on what I really wanted to. And what I started to see is that I still had these kind of concerns about how poor Black women were read. And it wasn't a kind of policy kind of concern. It was about seeing this as a type of spiritual warfare for those women and for their kids and how they get to think of themselves. And that ended up intersecting with a lot of the ways that I started thinking about policy and criminalization around sexual identity, around gender and reproductive rights. And being in English, you know, at that time, uh, queer theory was the big thing, but there wasn't a focus on race and it was very male centric. And so one of the things that as a PhD student, like getting to learn how to be an interdisciplinary scholar at that time meant reading biological, sociological texts on sexuality and seeing where I wanted to intervene and what I could say that might be differently and influence these conversations. And so that's where being at Michigan State is probably the first time I really said, this is what I'm going to do. And at that time, there wasn't what there is today. And so I think to risk that is just the kind of, I have to say, it's it was more about the person of, of growing up and seeing how my mom was treated by the kind of state and welfare agencies, as well as the church and things like that, that influenced why I wanted to do this type of work. And I think I've done what I was supposed to do. I think all of my work has connected spirituality to this conversation in ways that in other kind of areas that hasn't been the case around Black sexuality, I think I've done a good job of kind of connecting to the kind of shortfalls and failures of policy with regards to gender. And so those are some of the things that literature and literary analysis did teach me to do very well. It taught me how to be a researcher and not just in literature. And so I do read a lot of policy. All of my classmates in undergrad went to law school. I did not go, but I ended up basically reading a bunch of policy and law in ways that probably maybe I should have done that. But I think this was a more personal kind of venture for me. And it ended up working out in ways that I think were meant to be. So I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Fascinating tale. Your fellow graduate students at Michigan State, did most of them in that program end up in academic jobs? Yeah. So I think there were about, in my year, about 10 of us, and I had like four women of color and myself, where we all ended up at different institutions. And so they're all at different universities now teaching, and most of them in English departments. I think I'm the only one that's in uh, FM studies. And But I made the jump to FM from English after being promoted to associate. And part of that had to do with just understanding my kind of Research was definitely more um, leaning towards interdisciplinary work than staying focused on literature and literary analysis. So, one of the things that people outside of academia sometimes don't get is how many balls we have to juggle at the same time. And um, it's often a problem with newly minted PhDs that take their first academic teaching job uh, feel hit pretty hard. Do you remember those days? And how did you learn to juggle research and teaching and service and all the things you have to do as a a faculty member and stay sane and be productive on all those things? How did you figure it out for yourself? Well, I mean, work was not that hard. Like I've I've worked since I was 
14 years old. And so trying to figure out how to work and do school wasn't that difficult. I think what was difficult was the stuff that I didn't realize until I think my PhD program where things around institutional structures and what that would mean as a person of color and a woman trying to navigate those things. And so the kind of emotional thing of not being able to check out of that. So I could work a bunch of different jobs for like 40 to 50 hours a week and do schoolwork. Um, None of that prepared me to do with like kind of institutional racism that I would face in trying to complete my PhD program. And so those things Again, going back to the personal. So I think I figured out ways to navigate because doing service sometimes meant that I was going to spend time thinking about these things anyway. So I might as well, you know, be a part of some committee that was trying to think through that as well. And so I think the balancing act has to be learned. I think, like I said, I had really great mentors that I think when I was a PhD student, I was definitely taught that you have to publish before you get out of grad school. And so I had been taught that I had been taught how to do that and balance it and work. And I had been taught that probably I wasn't not going to be able to do service. And so I think that's the kind of thing that when I got to the English department at University of Florida, I was prepared to do all of those things because in some sense, I had been doing that in terms of like serving on diversity committees as a grad student, but then also trying to publish and trying to work. And so I think it does depend on having good mentors. I think having a good cohort, women group of cohorts. So we found each other. That wasn't something that the university did. And I think we stuck it out with each other in ways that benefited all of us. And so some of that is not just can't be mandated by the institution. It's finding your tribe and and finding the people who are going to help push you and things like that. And so when I've advise grad students. I've always said that that they have to find their people. I've also told grad students to not just be attracted by a big name, but by to work with people who are going to want to see you succeed. And not just like I tell my grad students, I don't want replications of myself. I want them to do their own kind of brilliant work. And, and if, if you work with people that way, then that gives you some sense of how to be okay with charting ahead in your research and scholarship and service in ways that may not always fit what already exists. And I think for people working in marginalized fields, that's important to have mentors that teach you how to do that and balance that. But I think it's important that students pursuing any kind of graduate or extra degree understand early on what's entailed and not just assume that just being a student and completing everything is going to be the solution. You're you're gonna have to be prepared to do more than that. And so I think I had mentors that instilled that in me from from jump. So you were lucky in that regard. That doesn't always occur. And it sounded like it you got that kind of mentoring early enough in a way that others struggle with in the early days of their first job. That's great. Well, you communicate what every researcher does, I think, or experiences anyway, that pleasure of seeing things coming together, the pleasure of understanding at deeper and deeper levels certain themes and then trying to express those. This was tons of fun and the insights you gave us into your own way of approaching your research were really quite valuable. Thank you so much, Doctor, for uh, joining us on this podcast. And thank you.